Part nine of the Perfect Wagnerite. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Perfect Wagnerite, a commentary on the Nibelung's Ring, by George Bernard Shaw. Part nine, the music of the Ring. THE REPRESENTATIVE THEMES To be able to follow the music of the ring, all that is necessary is to become familiar enough with the brief musical phrases out of which it is built, to recognize them, and to attach a certain definite significance to them. Exactly as any ordinary Englishman recognizes and attaches a definite significance to the opening bars of God Save the King, there is no difficulty here. Every soldier is expected to learn and distinguish between different bugle-calls and trumpet-calls, and anyone who can do this can learn and distinguish between the representative themes or leading motives, leitmotifs, of the ring. They are easier to learn, because they are repeated again and again, and the main ones are so emphatically impressed on the ear whilst the spectator is looking for the first time at the objects or witnessing the first strong dramatic expression of the ideas they denote, that the requisite association is formed unconsciously. The themes are neither long, nor complicated, nor difficult. Whoever can pick up the flourish of a coach-horn, the note of a bird, the rhythm of the postman's knock, or of a horse's gallop, will be at no loss in picking up the themes of the ring. No doubt, when it comes to forming the necessary mental association with the theme, it may happen that the spectator may find his ear conquering the tune more easily than his mind conquers the thought. But for the most part, the themes do not denote thoughts at all, but either emotions of a quite simple universal kind, or the sights, sounds, and fancies common enough to be familiar to children. Indeed, some of them are as frankly childish as any of the funny little orchestral interludes which, in Haydn's creation, introduce the horse, the deer, or the worm. We have both the horse and the worm in the ring, treated exactly in Haydn's manner, and with an effect not a whit less ridiculous to superior people who decline to take it good-humouredly. Even the complacence of good Wagnerites is occasionally rather overstrained by the way in which Brunhild's allusions to her charger Grenny elicit from the band a little rum-ti-tum triplet which by itself is in no way suggestive of a horse, although a continuous rush of such triplets makes a very exciting musical gallop. Other themes denote objects which cannot be imitatively suggested by music. For instance, music cannot suggest a ring, and cannot suggest gold, yet each of these has a representative theme which pervades the score in all directions. In the case of the gold, the association is established by the very salient way in which the orchestra breaks into the pretty theme in the first act of the Rhinegold, at the moments when the sun-rays strike down through the water, and light up the glittering treasure, hitherto invisible. The reference of the strange little theme of the wishing-cap is equally manifest from the first, since the spectator's attention is wholly taken up with the tarn-helm and its magic, when the theme is first pointedly uttered by the orchestra. The sword-theme is introduced at the end of the Rheingold to express Wotan's hero inspiration, 
and I've already mentioned that Wagner, unable, when it came to practical stage management, to forego the appeal to the eye as well as to the thought, here made Wotan pick up a sword and brandish it, though no such instruction appears in the printed score. When this sacrifice to Wagner's skepticism as to the reality of any appeal to an audience that is not made through their bodily sense is omitted, the association of the theme with the sword is not formed until that point in the first act of the Valkyries at which Siegmund is left alone by Hundig's hearth, weaponless, with the assurance that he will have to fight for his life at dawn with his host. He recalls then how his father promised him a sword for his hour of need, and as he does so, a flicker from the dying fire is caught by the golden hilt of the sword in the tree, when the theme immediately begins to gleam through the quiver of sound from the orchestra, and only dies out as the fire sinks and the sword is once more hidden by the darkness. Later on, this theme, which is never silent while Siglinda is dwelling on the story of the sword, leaps out into the most dazzling splendor the band can give it, when Siegmund triumphantly draws the weapon from the tree. As it consists of seven notes only, with a very marked measure and a melody like the simple flourish on a trumpet or post-horn, nobody capable of catching a tune can easily miss it. The Valhalla theme, sounded with solemn grandeur as the home of the gods first appears to us and to Wotan at the beginning of the second scene of the Rheingold, also cannot be mistaken. It, too, has a memorable rhythm, and its majestic harmonies, far from presenting those novel and curious problems in polyphony, of which Wagner still stands, suspected by superstitious people, are just those three simple chords which festive students who vamp accompaniments to comic songs, by ear, soon find sufficient for nearly all the popular tunes in the world. On the other hand, the ring theme, which, when it begins to hurtle through the third scene of the Rheingold, cannot possibly be referred to any special feature in the general gloom and turmoil of the den of the dwarfs. It is not a melody, but merely the displaced metric accent which musicians call syncopation, rung on the notes of the familiar chord formed by piling three minor thirds on top of one another, technically the chord of the minor ninth, see Devant diminished seventh. One soon picks it up and identifies it, but it does not get introduced in the unequivocally clear fashion of the themes described above, or of that malignant monstrosity, the theme which denotes the course on the gold. Consequently, it cannot be said that the musical design of the work is perfectly clear at the first hearing as regards all the themes, but it is so as regards most of them the main lines being laid down as emphatically and intelligibly as the dramatic motives in a Shakespearean play. As to the coyer subtleties of the score, their discovery provides fresh interest for repeated hearings. Giving the ring a Beethovenian inexhaustibility and toughness of wear. The themes associated with the individual characters get stamped on the memory easily by the simple association of the sound of the theme with the appearance of the person indicated. Its appropriateness is generally pretty obvious. Thus the entry of the giants is made to a vigorous, stumping, tramping measure. Mimi, being a quaint, weird old creature, has a quaint, weird theme of two thin chords, 
that creep down eerily one to the other. Katruna's theme is pretty and caressing, Gunther's bold, rough, and commonplace. It is a favorite trick of Wagner's, when one of his characters is killed on the stage, to make the theme attached to that character weaken, fail, and fade away with a broken echo into silence. THE CHARACTERIZATION All this, however, is the mere child's play of theme-work. The more complex characters, instead of having a simple musical label attached to them, have their characteristic ideas and aspirations identified, with special representative themes as they come into play in the drama. And the chief merit of the thematic structure of the ring is the mastery with which the dramatic play of the ideas is reflected in the contrapuntal play of the themes. We do not find Wotan, like the dragon or the horse, or for the matter of that, like the stage demon in Weber's Freischutz, or Meyerbeer's Robert the Devil, with one fixed theme attached to him like the nameplate to an umbrella, blaring unaltered from the orchestra whenever he steps on the stage. Sometimes we have the Valhalla theme used to express the greatness of the gods as an idea of Wotan's. Again we have his spear, the symbol of his power, identified with another theme on which Wagner finally exercises his favorite device by making it break and fall, cut through, as it were, by the tearing sound of the theme identified with the sword, when Siegfried shivers the spear with a stroke of notung. Yet another theme connected with Wotan is the wanderer music, which breaks with such a majestic reassurance on the nightmare terror of Mimi when Wotan appears at the mouth of his cave in the scene of the Three Riddles. Thus, not only are there several Wotan themes, but each varies in its inflections and shades of tone-color, according to its dramatic circumstances. So, too, the merry ham-tune of the young Siegfried changes its measure, loads itself with massive harmonies, and becomes an exordium of the most imposing splendor when it heralds his entry as full-fledged hero in the prologue to Night Falls on the Gods. Even Mimi has his two or three themes, the weird one already described, the little one in triple measure imitating the tap of his hammer, and fiercely mocked in the savage laugh of Alberich at his death, and finally the crooning tune in which he details all his motherly kindnesses to the little foundling Siegfried. Besides this, there were all manner of little musical blinkings and shamblings and whinings, the least hint of which from the orchestra at any moment instantly brings Mimi to mind, whether he is on the stage at the time or not. In truth, dramatic characterization in music cannot be carried very far by the use of representative themes. The Mozart, the greatest of all masters of this art, never dreamt of employing them, and, extensively as they are used in the ring, they do not enable Wagner to dispense with the Mozartian method. Apart from the themes, Siegfried and Mimi are still as sharply distinguished from one another by the character of their music as Don Giovanni from Leporello, Wotan from Gutruna, as Zarastro from Papagena. It is true that the themes attached to the characters have the same musical appropriateness as the rest of the music. For example, neither the Valhalla nor the spear themes could, without the most ludicrous incongruity, be used for the forest bird or the unstable delusive loki but for all that 
the musical characterization must be regarded as independent of the specific themes, since the entire elimination of the thematic system from the score would leave the characters as well distinguished musically as they are at present. One more illustration of the way in which the thematic system is worked. There are two themes connected with Loki. One is a rapid, sinuous, twisting, shifty, semi-quaver figure suggested by the unsubstantial, elusive logic-spinning of the clever one's brain-craft. The other is the fire theme. In the first act of Siegfried, Mimi makes his unavailing attempt to explain fear to Siegfried, with the horror fresh upon him of the sort of nightmare into which he has fallen after the departure of the wanderer, and which has taken the form, at once fanciful and symbolic, of a delirious dread of light, he asks Siegfried whether he has never, whilst wandering in the forest, had his heart set hammering in frantic dread by the mysterious lights of the gloaming. To this Siegfried, greatly astonished, replies that on such occasions his heart is altogether healthy and his sensations perfectly normal. Here Mimi's question is accompanied by the tremulous sounding of the fire-theme, with its harmonies mostly oppressively disturbed and troubled, whereas with Siegfried's reply they become quite clear and straightforward, making the theme sound bold, brilliant, and serene. This is a typical instance of the way in which the themes are used. The thematic system gives symphonic interest, reasonableness, and unity to the music, enabling the composer to exhaust every aspect and quality of his melodic material, and, in Beethoven's manner, to work miracles of beauty, expression, and significance with the briefest phrases. As a set-off against this, it has led Wagner to indulge in repetitions that would be intolerable in a purely dramatic work. Almost the first thing that a dramatist has to learn in constructing a play is that the persons must not come on the stage in the second act and tell one another at great length what the audience has already seen pass before its eyes in the first act. The extent to which Wagner has been seduced into violating this rule by his affection for his themes is startling to a practiced playwright. Siegfried inherits from Wotan a mania for autobiography, which leads him to afflict on every one he meets the story of Mimi and the dragon, although the audience have spent a whole evening witnessing the events he is narrating. Hagen tells the story to Gunther, and that same night Alberich's ghost tells it over again to Hagen, who knows it already as well as the audience. Siegfried tells the Rhine maidens as much of it as they will listen to, and then keeps telling it to his hunting companions until they kill him. Wotan's autobiography on the second evening becomes his biography in the mouths of the Norns on the fourth. The little that the Norns add to it is repeated an hour later by Valtrauta. How far all this repetition is tolerable is a matter of individual taste. A good story will bear repetition, and if it has woven into it such pretty tunes as the Rhine Maiden's yodel, Mimi's tinkling anvil beat, the note of the forest bird, the call of Siegfried's horn, and so on, it will bear a good deal of rehearing. Those who have but newly learnt their way through the ring will not readily admit that there is a bar too much repetition. 
but how if you find some anti-wagnerite raising the question whether the thematic system does not enable the composer to produce a music drama with much less musical fertility than was required from his predecessors for the composition of operas under the old system such discussions are not within the scope of this little book but as the book is now finished for really nothing more need to be said about the ring i am quite willing to add a few pages of ordinary musical criticism partly to please the amateurs who enjoy that sort of reading and partly for the guidance of those who wish to obtain some hints to help them through such critical small talk about wagner and bayreuth as may be forced upon them at the dinner-table or between the acts the old and the new music in the old-fashioned opera every separate number involved the composition of a fresh melody but it is quite a mistake to suppose that this creative effort extended continuously throughout the number from the first to the last bar when a musician composes according to a set metrical pattern the selection of the pattern and the composition of the first stave a stave in music corresponds to a line in verse generally completes the creative effort all the rest follows more or less mechanically to fill up the pattern an air being very like a wallpaper design in this respect thus the second stave is usually a perfectly obvious consequence of the first and the third and fourth an exact or very slightly varied repetition of the first and second for example given the first line of pop goes a weasel or yankee doodle any musical cobbler could supply the remaining three there is very little tune-turning of this kind in the ring and it is noteworthy that where it does occur as in Zygmunt's spring song and mimi's croon ein zulendes kind the effect of the symmetrical staves recurring as a mere matter of form is perceptibly poor and platitudinous compared with the free flow of melody which prevails elsewhere the other and harder way of composing is to take a strain of free melody and bring every variety of change of mood upon it as if it were a thought that sometimes brought hope sometimes melancholy sometimes exultation sometimes raging despair and so on to take several themes of this kind and weave them together into a rich musical fabric passing panoramically before the ear with a continually varying flow of sentiment is the highest feat of the musician it is in this way that we get the fugue of bach and the symphony of beethoven the admittedly inferior musician is the one who like Aubert and offenbach not to mention our purveyors of drawing-room ballads can produce an unlimited quantity of symmetrical tunes but cannot weave themes symphonically when this is taken into account it will be seen that the fact that there is a great deal of repetition in the ring does not distinguish it from the old-fashioned operas the real difference is that in them the repetition was used by the mechanical completion of conventional metric patterns whereas in the ring the recurrence of the theme is an intelligent and interesting consequence of the recurrence of the dramatic phenomenon which it denotes it should be remembered also that the substitution of symphonically treated themes for tunes with symmetrical eight-bar staves and the like has always been the rule in the highest forms of music to describe it or be affected by it is an abandonment of melody is to confess oneself an ignoramus conversant only with dance tunes and ballads 
the sort of stuff a purely dramatic musician produces when he hampers himself with metric patterns in composition is not unlike what might have resulted in literature if carlyle for example had been compelled by convention to write his historical stories in rhymed stanzas that is to say it limits his fertility to an occasional phrase and three-quarters of the time exercises only his barren ingenuity in fitting rhymes and measures to it in literature the great masters of the art have long emancipated themselves from metric patterns nobody claims that the hierarchy of modern impassioned prose writers from bunyan to ruskin should be placed below the writers of pretty lyric from herrick to mr austin dobson only in dramatic literature do we find the devastating tradition of blank verse still lingering giving fictitious prestige to the platitudes of dullards and robbing the dramatic style of the genuine poet of its full natural endowment of variety force and simplicity this state of things as we have seen finds its parallel in musical art since music can be written in prose themes or in versified tunes only here nobody dreams of disputing the greater difficulty of the prose forms and the comparative triviality of versification yet in dramatic music as in dramatic literature the tradition of versification clings with the same pernicious results and the opera like the tragedy is conventionally made like a wallpaper the theatre seems doomed to be in all things the last refuge of the hankering after cheap prettiness in art unfortunately this confusion of the decorative with the dramatic elements in both literature and music is maintained by the example of great masters in both arts very touching dramatic expression can be combined with decorative symmetry of versification when the artist happens to possess both the decorative and dramatic gifts and to have cultivated both hand in hand shakespeare and shelley for instance far from being hampered by the conventional obligation to write their dramas in verse found it much the easiest and cheapest way of producing them but if shakespeare had been compelled by custom to write entirely in prose all his ordinary dialogue might have been as good as the first scene of as you like it and all his lofty passages as fine as what a piece of work is man thus sparing us a great deal of blank verse in which the thought is commonplace and the expression though catchingly turned absurdly pompous the scent might have either been a serious drama or might never have been written at all if shelley had been allowed to carry off his unreality by elizabethan versification still both poets have achieved many passages in which the decorative and dramatic qualities are not only reconciled but seem to enhance one another to a pitch otherwise unattainable just so in music when we find as in the case of mozart a prodigiously gifted and arduously trained musician who is also by happy accident a dramatist comparable to moliere the obligation to compose operas in versified numbers not only does not embarrass him but actually saves him trouble and thought no matter what his dramatic mood may be he expresses it in exquisite musical verses more easily than a dramatist of ordinary singleness of talent can express it in prose accordingly he too like shakespeare and shelley leaves versified airs like dalla sua pace or gluck's che farò senza euridice 
or Weber's Liza Liza, which are as dramatic from the first notes to the last as the untrammeled themes of the ring. In consequence, it used to be professorially demanded that all dramatic music should present the same double aspect. The demand was unreasonable, since symmetrical versification is no merit in dramatic music. One might as well stipulate that a dinner-fork should be constructed so as to serve also as a tablecloth. It was an ignorant demand, too, because it is not true that the composers of these exceptional examples were always, or even often, able to combine dramatic expression with symmetrical versification. Side by side with Dalla Sua Pace, we have Il Mil Tesoro and Non Midir, in which exquisitely expressive opening phrases lead to decorative passages, which are as grotesque from the dramatic point of view as the music which Alberich sings when he is slipping and sneezing in the Rhine mud is from the decorative point of view. Further, there is to be considered the mass of shapeless dry recitative, which separates these symmetrical numbers, and which might have been raised to considerable dramatic and musical importance had it been incorporated in a continuous musical fabric by the thematic treatment. Finally, Mozart's most dramatic finales and concerted numbers are more or less in sonata form, like symphonic movements, and must therefore be classed as musical prose. And sonata form dictates repetitions and recapitulations, from which the perfectly unconventional form adopted by Wagner is free. On the whole, there is more scope for both repetition and convention in the old form than in the new and the poorer a composer's musical gift is, the surer he is to resort to the eighteenth-century patterns to eke out his invention. THE NINETEENTH CENTURY When Wagner was born, in 1813, music had newly become the most astonishing, the most fascinating, the most miraculous art in the world. Mozart's Don Giovanni had made all musical Europe conscious of the enchantments of the modern orchestra, and of the perfect adaptability of music to the subtlest needs of the dramatist. Beethoven had shown how these inarticulate mood poems, which surge through men who have like himself no exceptional command of words, can be written down in music as symphonies. Not that Mozart and Beethoven invented these applications of their art, but they were the first whose works made it clear that the dramatic and subjective powers of sound were enthralling enough to stand by themselves quite apart from the decorative musical structures of which they had hitherto been a mere feature. After the finales in Figaro and Don Giovanni, the possibility of the modern music-drama lay bare. After the symphonies of Beethoven, it was certain that the poetry that lies too deep for words does not lie too deep for music, and that the vicissitudes of the soul, from the roughest fun to the loftiest aspiration, can make symphonies without the aid of dance-tunes. As much, perhaps, will be claimed for the preludes and fugues of Bach. But Bach's method was unattainable. His compositions were wonderful webs of exquisitely beautiful Gothic traceries in sound, quite beyond all ordinary human talent. Beethoven's far blunter craft was thoroughly popular and practicable, to save his soul could he have drawn one gothic line in sound as Bach could, much less have woven several of them together with so apt a harmony 
that even when the composer is unmoved its progressions saturate themselves with the emotion which as modern critics are a little apt to forget springs as warmly from our delicately touched admiration as from our sympathies and sometimes makes us give a composer credit for pathetic intentions which he does not entertain just as a boy imagines a treasure of tenderness and noble wisdom in the beauty of a woman besides bach set comic dialogue to music exactly as he set the recitatives of the passion there being for him apparently only one recitative possible and that the musical best he reserved the expression of his merry mood for the regular set numbers in which he could make one of his wonderful contrapuntal traceries of pure ornament with the requisite gaiety of line and movement beethoven bowed to no ideal of beauty he only sought the expression for his feeling to him a joke was a joke and if it sounded funny in music he was satisfied until the old habit of judging all music by its decorative symmetry had worn out musicians were shocked by his symphonies and misunderstanding his integrity openly questioned his sanity but to those who were not looking for pretty new sound patterns but were longing for the expression of their moods in music he achieved revelation because being single in his aim to express his own moods he anticipated with revolutionary courage and frankness all the moods of the rising generations of the nineteenth century the result was inevitable in the nineteenth century it was no longer necessary to be born a pattern designer in sound to be a composer one had but to be a dramatist or a poet completely susceptible to the dramatic and descriptive powers of sound a race of literary and theatrical musicians appeared and meyerbeer the first of them made an extraordinary impression the frankly delirious description of his robert the devil in balzac's short story entitled gambra and goethe's astonishingly mistaken notion that he could have composed music for faust show how completely the enchantments of the new dramatic music upset the judgment of artists of eminent discernment meyerbeer was people said old gentlemen still say so in paris the successor of beethoven he was if a less perfect musician than mozart a profounder genius above all he was original and daring wagner himself raved about the duet in the fourth act of les huguenots as wildly as any one yet all this effect of originality and profundity was produced by a quite limited talent for turning striking phrases exploiting certain curious and rather catching rhythms and modulations and devising suggestive and eccentric instrumentation on its decorative side it was the same phenomenon in music as the baroque school in architecture an energetic struggle to enliven organic decay by mechanical oddities and novelties meyerbeer was no symphonist he could not apply the thematic system to his striking phrases and so had to cobble them into metric patterns in the old style and as he was no absolute musician either he hardly got his metric patterns beyond mere quadrille tunes which were either wholly undistinguished or else made remarkable by certain brusqueries which in the total rococo manner owed their singularity to their senselessness he could produce neither a thorough music drama nor a charming opera but with all this and worse 
Meyerbeer had some genuine dramatic energy, and even passion, and sometimes rose to the occasion in a manner which, whilst the imagination of his contemporaries remained on fire with the novelties of dramatic music, led them to overrate him with an extravagance which provoked Wagner to conduct a long critical campaign against his leadership. Thirty years ago this campaign was mentally ascribed to the professional jealousy of a disappointed rival. Nowadays young people cannot understand how anyone could ever have taken Meyerbeer's influence seriously. Those who remember how his reputation stood half a century ago, and who realize what a not-thoroughfare the path he opened proved to be, even to himself, know how inevitable and how impersonal Wagner's attack was. Wagner was the literary musician par excellence. He could not, like Mozart and Beethoven, produce decorative tone structures independently of any dramatic or poetic subject matter, because, that craft being no longer necessary for his purpose, he did not cultivate it. As Shakespeare, combined with Tennyson, appears to have an exclusively dramatic talent, so exactly does Wagner, compared with Mendelssohn. On the other hand, he had not to go to third-rate literary hacks for librettos to set to music. He produced his own dramatic poems, thus giving dramatic integrity to opera, and making symphony articulate. A Beethoven symphony, except the articulate part of the ninth, expresses noble feeling, but not thought. It has moods, but no ideas. Wagner added thought, and produced the music drama. Mozart's loftiest opera, his ring, so to speak, the magic flute, has a libretto which, though none the worse for seeming, like the Rheingold, the merest Christmas tomfoolery to shallow spectators, is the product of a talent immeasurably inferior to Mozart's own. The libretto of Don Giovanni is coarse and trivial. Its transfiguration by Mozart's music may be a marvel, but nobody will venture to contend that such transfigurations, however seductive, can be as satisfactory as tone poetry or drama in which the musician and the poet are at the same level. Here, then, we see the simple secret of Wagner's preeminence as a dramatic musician. He wrote the poems as well as composed the music of his stage festival plays, as he called them. Up to a certain point in his career, Wagner paid the penalty of undertaking two arts instead of one. Mozart had his trade as a musician at his fingers' ends when he was twenty, because he had served an arduous apprenticeship to that trade and no other. Wagner was very far from having attained equal mastery at thirty-five. Indeed, he himself has told us that not until he had passed the age at which Mozart died did he compose with that complete spontaneity of musical expression which can only be attained by winning entire freedom from all preoccupation with the difficulties of technical processes. But, when the time came, he was not only a consummate musician, like Mozart, but a dramatic poet, and a critical and philosophical essayist, exercising a considerable influence on his century. The sign of his consummation was his ability at last to play with his art, and thus to add to his already famous achievements in sentimental drama that light-hearted act of comedy of which the greatest masters, like Moliere and Mozart, are so much rarer than the tragedians and sentimentalists. 
it was then that he composed the first two acts of siegfried and later on the master singers a professedly comedic work and a quite mozartian garden of melody hardly credible as the work of the straining artifices of tannhauser only as no man ever learns to do one thing by doing something else however closely allied the two things may be wagner still produced no music independently of his poems the overture to the master singers is delightful when you know what it is all about but only to those to whom it came as a concert piece without any such clue and who judged its reckless counterpoint by the standard of bach and of mozart's magic flute overture can realize how atrocious it used to sound to musicians of the old school when i first heard it with the clear march of the polyphony of Bach's B minor mass fresh in my memory, I confess that I thought that the parts had got dislocated, and that some of the band were half a bar behind the others. Perhaps they were, but now that I am familiar with the work, and with Wagner's harmony, I can still quite understand certain passages producing that effect on an admirer of Bach, even when performed with perfect accuracy. THE MUSIC OF THE FUTURE The success of Wagner has been so prodigious that to his dazzled disciples it seems that the age of what he called absolute music must be at an end, and the musical future destined to be an exclusively Wagnerian one inaugurated at Bayreuth. All great geniuses produce this illusion. Wagner did not begin a movement, he consummated it. He was the summit of the nineteenth-century school of dramatic music, in the same sense as Mozart was the summit, the word is Gounod's, of the eighteenth-century school. And those who attempt to carry on his Bayreuth tradition will assuredly share the fate of the forgotten purveyors of second-hand Mozart a hundred years ago. As to the expected supersession of absolute music, it is sufficient to point to the fact that germany produced two absolute musicians of the first class during wagner's lifetime one the greatly gifted goetz who died young the other brahms whose absolute musical endowment was as extraordinary as his thought was commonplace wagner had for him the contempt of the original thinker for the man of second-hand ideas and of the strenuously dramatic musician for mere brute musical faculty but though his contempt was perhaps deserved by the triumph leads the schicksals leads and elegies and requiems in which brahms took his brains so seriously nobody could listen to brahms natural utterance of the richest absolute music especially in his chamber compositions without rejoicing in his amazing gift a reaction to absolute music starting partly from Brahms, and partly from such revivals of medieval music as those of De Lange in Holland, and Mr. Arnold Dolmetsch in England, is both likely and promising, whereas there is no more hope in attempts to out-Wagner Wagner in music-drama than there was in the old attempts, or for matter of that, the new ones, to make Handel the starting point of a great school of oratorio. End of part nine.